This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to Real Talk on a a special edition. And uh, this is today real talk, my friends. We're going to do things a little bit differently, and we want to do more of this on the show. We're not focusing on the items that are leading the news headlines, and we're not focusing on the things that all the news anchors are talking about right off the top of their broadcasts. We're talking about real life today, and we're going to have a difficult uh, discussion today, but an incredibly important discussion. Today, we're talking about suicide. Coming up in about half an hour, award-winning journalist Anna Mailer Paperni is going to join me. She's the author of Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. It's a firsthand account. It's an incredibly powerful book about Anna's firsthand experience, an attempt on her life in her early 20s when she was working at her dream job at the Globe and Mail newspaper It's a story about survival. It's a story about navigating mental illness and how we as a society approach it and try to treat it. We lead off this morning with a story of grief, a story of loss, and a story of courage. Kyle Dubay joins me live in the Real Talk studio today, a day after the two-year anniversary of his son's death. Luke was... 16 years old when two years and a day ago you lost him to suicide and you're talking about it including on your podcast relentless i want to welcome you here to real talk it means a lot to have you here willing to talk about something that i can't imagine how difficult it must be no i appreciate that ryan i appreciate you having me here and uh yeah i uh I'm good to come and talk to you about it. You're the host of Relentless. As mentioned, you interview individuals that have demonstrated great resilience and tenacity, uh, individuals that in many circumstances have come out on top uh, in, in circumstances where otherwise they might be counted out. You're the executive director of an organization, a nonprofit called You Can Youth Services. And, and for more than 20 years in that role, I know that you've seen hundreds of stories of of people overcoming great odds and and dealing with things that may seem unimaginable. Did you ever suspect that you might find yourself in that same circumstance, trying to move forward after something devastating like losing a child? Not at all. Not at all. Um, As you said, I I work with vulnerable young people for a living. I have my entire career. Uh, In that time, I, I, I think maybe maybe three young people have taken their lives uh, that I've worked with. And, you know, for us as a family, um, this was the shock of a lifetime. It really was. And, you know, the young people that I work with come from from some pretty bad places. Uh, there's a lot of trauma in their lives. There's a lot of things that they've been through, every type of abuse you can imagine. They're quite resilient. And um, uh, our son, Luke, um, I believe, come came from a, great village came from a, a good home with love and opportunity and, and all those things. And he was an incredible boy. Um, he was smart. He was funny. Uh, he had a good friend group. Uh, he was loved and he loved others. And, and, um, he had a, a darkness within him that we didn't understand the depth. Um, 
there was obviously a loneliness that we didn't understand that he was going through. And two, three weeks prior to him taking his life, he was down. He was struggling a bit. But I would say any parent out there with a, with a teenager would, would say, yeah, I've seen my kid go through that as well. And so we did everything that we would normally do, same as his older brothers that had been through that. And we we loved a little more. We spent more time. We talked more. And he was sharing that he was struggling, but but obviously not to that depth. And, yeah, we went to bed on April 4th. It was just a normal day and we woke up on april 5th 2021 and our lives were changed forever Hmm. you said to me just a couple of hours uh, a couple of minutes i should say before we started doing this show you said you're still a little bit in a state of shock and Hmm. and i would imagine that that maybe to a certain degree that might be the reality for the rest of your life um where was your head at yesterday as you Hmm. remembered your son was it like every day when you wake up and you miss him yeah, well, it, it, you know, my wife puts it well. She says every night when we fall asleep, we think of Luke, and every morning when we get up, we think of Luke. And um, yesterday was a two-year anniversary, and and April fifth is will be the worst day of the year every year for us forever. Um, this doesn't leave, and and it is still shocking to us. It, it doesn't add up. Suicide doesn't add up, anyways. And with our Lukey. We call him Lukey. Mm. Um, with our Lukey, it, it just doesn't add up, and so it's it, it's still shocking. It's it's devastating, obviously, and and um, but the the pain doesn't leave. That's the thing about grief is is it just it doesn't go away. Um, it is the most relentless thing in my life, mm. like hands down. Nothing has ever been this relentless in my life other than grief, and and so you have to live with it you have to learn to adapt your life around it and um yeah the shock i mean you know the first two weeks of course is uh, two months is it's it's everything's numb it's confusing it's all i don't remember the first most of the first two weeks so i mean that's a different type of shock but just living with this every day i mean even the fact that i'm sitting here talking to you about it it's 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 still shocking to us. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, hosting Relentless before Luke passed, no. or is this is this something that came about this podcast project in part um, in, in a way to honor him, or because of your personal journey? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it wasn't because of Luke. This mm-hmm. was this was um, this was a marketing thing for you can use services. Mm-hmm. You know, we the work that we do, um, we we use the word relentless all the time. At, at you can use services. We, I, all my youth workers are called relentless youth workers. Um, if a young person doesn't show up where they're supposed to be, we're knocking on doors, going to find them. Like we are relentless in the pursuit of relationship with these young people. And so my marketing guys, um, over at road 55, they were like, listen, we, you, they've been bugging me to do a podcast for a while. Cause as you're going to find out here, I like to talk and I love to talk. And, and I'm so interested in the stories of others in regards to them being relentless in their lives. And it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's sports, maybe it's business, maybe it's their aspirations of being a music star. Maybe it's they've had a relentless pressure of some sort that they've had to get through. And and I just love talking to these people about these stories. But what's ended up happening for me, we've, we've done uh, about 20 episodes is that I've realized in my my grief journey, my grief walk, is that I I love 
people. I love connecting with people. And it's actually been almost cathartic for me mm. where it, the episodes aren't about Luke. They're not about grief, you know, other than the, the most recent ones that we've done. Mm-hmm. But I, it has been good for me. It's been good to make connections with other people, with new people and learn their stories. And, and my, my hope is that the podcast is hopeful. And so in my life, I need hope. You know, there's many dark days for me where I'm, I'm so sad and I'm going through stuff that's hard and, and, um, the podcast has been very hopeful for me. Uh, it's hard to believe it's, it's been five years today, Mm -hmm. uh, that the humble Broncos bus crashed, uh, on route to a game and, uh, so many young lives were lost, uh, that day and, and, and a nation mourns, uh, those losses, but nobody feels it more viscerally, certainly than, the families, yeah. the bereaved families, and that includes uh, Chris Joseph, yeah. who joined you for a two-part uh, episode, one of them released on April 4th, and one of them will be released on April 11th. People yeah. can check out more at youcan.ca. Uh, uh, he lost his son, Jackson, in that crash. What was that like, sitting down with, with a guy with whom, uh, you know, tragically, you can relate yeah. uh, losing your young boy one of the one of the loves of your life one yeah. of the prides of your life at yeah. such a young age how how do you begin that conversation well chris and i have known each other for a long time uh chris and i were hockey dad lacrosse dad buddies prior to him losing his son um so we were buddies you know you go to tournaments you drink you have a good time you do all that type of stuff and so we weren't super best friends or anything when he, when the Humboldt crash happened, I think like you, like anybody uh, in this country and, and many people around the world, they were, they remember where they were. They remember so much of it. And I knew that J- Jackson was on that team. Um, and then of course it all starts coming out. And, and um, so I did what I could to su- support Chris, which was truth be told, nothing like, you know, some messages, some phone calls, all that. And, you know, I'd see Chris here and there and my boy took his life three years later, the day before the Humboldt crash anniversary. And Chris and his wife learned of our son on the Humboldt anniversary when they were at some sort of service. And on April 7th, the next day they were in my backyard and they wanted to support my wife and I and my family. And I, I say it this way. Chris and I went from being hockey dad buddies, acquaintances to, to almost bonded as brothers through grief. And Chris and I have become very close over the last two years where we sit and we talk and he's been a massive support for me. So we got talking after I got the podcast going and, and Chris and I both really believe that, um, grief isn't talked about a lot like it just isn't there's not a lot of education as far as i should grief is talked about after somebody dies it's not talked about prior to and so him and i i just said do you want to come on the podcast do you want to come and talk about it i call it the chris and kyle talks and and we've sat many times in my backyard his backyard and just cried and talked and supported one another and mostly him supporting me to be honest with you in the first two years and so he said, absolutely, let's do this. Well, we had a Chris and Kyle talk. We sat for two and a half hours. And that's why we had to turn it into two episodes because mm-hmm. it was pretty intense. And 
and um, pretty raw and, and real. And he's an incredible man who I admire and love so much. And, and it was just two dads talking about our loss. That's what it is. And so it was hard, though. It was hard. You get these 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 insights, I guess, on grief that you would never wish upon anybody, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you find yourself, you, your wife, your other boys, yep. um, you know, Chris, his family, the all, you know, I mean, and there's going to be people. I know that this episode is going to reach people for a lot of folks. This will be the first time they've ever heard a real talk. It'll be the first time they've ever heard of Relentless because it's going to be the subject matter that have brought them here to this. Sure, and there are too many people, um, tragically, uh, that that have an understanding of what this type of grief looks like yeah as a society i i don't know if you know we're talking enough about things like death i don't know if we're talking enough about depression or suicide or mental health or mental illness we had a guest on a, just a few days ago that talked about the importance of not just talking about mental health but talking about mental illness right. and we see the statistics yeah right we know that they, they they say one in five people will will wrestle with a mental illness in their lifetime but i've seen more and more experts taking issue with that number saying the rates are way higher sure you know when you're talking to people about suicide or when you have these these insights about it or these moments where do these conversations need to begin? Yeah, I think, uh, I believe anyways that it's it's better than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but there's still a long way to go. Um, I do think that, that mental health is a word, or, or sorry, two words that they put together all the time, but I agree that what about mental illness? Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it is about making sure that everyone's mental health is good, but we do have to talk about mental illness. And... Um, at the end of the day, obviously Luke suffered with mental illness and we did not understand the depths of it. We just didn't. And it's very hard for Jeanette and I, my wife, because, um, and my boys too, and, and the ripple effect of all the other people involved, we all blame ourselves. We do. Every single day we blame ourselves. And rationally, we know it's not our fault. But emotionally, how do you not blame yourself? What, that you should have seen it coming? Should have seen it coming. Should have, would have, all those things. And yet, I believe that, that what happened to my son and what happens to many people is that it was a brain attack. I believe there was this darkness that he didn't talk to us about that took over. And like a heart fails, like a kidney fails or a liver fails, his brain failed him in that moment. And that to me needs to be talked about more. I think suicide needs to be talked about more. I, you know, suicide prevention is a term that I never thought about prior to Luke taking his life. And, and my wife, we don't like that term hmm. because do we believe that suicide can be prevented? Yes, but when, when we hear that, we're like, oh, I guess we should have prevented Luke's suicide. Now, does the term need to be out there? Yes, it does. We, we, I'm not even sure where this is. I want to say Australia that they've changed their language. to Suicide is complicated mm. because it is. Um, is it preventable? Yeah, obviously. Um, but suicide is complicated is a softer way to and, and maybe a way that that can bring more understanding to it um to start more conversations and again these are things that i don't think we're talking about enough and and we need to to have i i i beg people especially parents be relentless with your kids have a conversation with them about suicide 
some people say, oh, well, I don't want to do that because maybe it'll make it make them think about it. Give them an idea. I'll guarantee you they already have. Most young people, I don't know about you, Ryan, but when I was young, I thought about it. Mm. Now, there's a difference, obviously, between thinking about it and having mental illness and, and, and going that far. But I promise you that they have thought about it or talked about it with their friends. Have that conversation with them. Why not have hard conversations with your kids? It, 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 it can help. It makes sense. And, you know, Jeanette and I are relentless with our boys. We, I, I've taken suicide intervention training in my career three, four, five times. I didn't see any of these big red flags that we're taught to see hmm. with Luke. I guess I should have been having a conversation with him. But if I go down that road, it gets real dark for me, right, as far as the blame game goes. But have these conversations. Can I ask this? I mean, these are all personal questions, mm -hmm. um, but there will be people that can relate with you mm -hmm. or there will be people that are concerned about where their own children are at. Uh, for some, it might be teens. For some, it might be adult children. Yeah, yeah. For some, it might be parents. Um, when you say you should have seen the signs or, or, or those types of things, what, what signs do you believe you should have seen? Yeah, so I don't... <laughs> I probably shouldn't say he should have seen the signs because because that's again that's just blaming. But it's there are signs like like you know change in behavior, like big changes in behavior, um, sleep patterns, um, moods. Um, if, if if somebody's really withdrawing, all that type of stuff. Um, those are some major signs to look for. Um, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're not spending time with their, their close ones, their friends, all that type of stuff, what does that look like? Now, obviously if someone's calling out for help, it's a huge sign mm. and you have like <laughs> jump on that, you know, if someone's asking for that help, obviously, but those are just some of the signs. And, and like I say with, with our son, I mean, the signs weren't glaring. They weren't slapping us in the face. Like I say, he was down, but it was a, it was kind of what we call that normal down, you know. And I mean, well, it's like we, he was what was he, was he just he was, shy of a sixteenth birthday? He, no, he was sixteen oh, he and was a half. Sixteen, 16 and, a half. and a half. I mean, what you know, what sixteen year old kid doesn't have dark days, right? Yeah, I mean, you think exactly. of a teenager and the the emotions they're going through. Exactly. You know, I feel like I my, my understanding of suicide. This is one of the reasons. And if you're just joining the live stream, we're talking to Kyle Dubay. Uh, he's the host of the Relentless Podcast, executive director of You Can Youth Services. Like uh, the list. I'm at the top of the list of the people that need to learn more about this, the people that need to understand more about this and have a basic understanding. You know, you talk about what are the signs and this is according to mental health experts I've interviewed or reading I've done just like any other person. Uh, you know, they, they talk about people that are like starting to give away some of their possessions. I mean, these sure. are some of the obvious things. They start sure. to give away things that are meaningful to them. One of the things that, that kind of makes me, I don't know, nervous isn't the right word, but you know, they they talk about how oftentimes people that have made a decision to take their life uh, come across as though they have found a peace. Mm -hmm. They found a peace about things, mm -hmm. which if you're not suspecting that they're considering dying by suicide, then you might believe that everything's starting to sort itself out. And it just reiterates to me that as a society, you know, generally speaking, I don't know that we have the tools uh, to be able to navigate this type of thing. And it's why I'm so grateful that we're having conversations like this. Uh, before we continue our conversation, I, I want to remind members of this audience that there is help available. Um, you deserve to be heard. 
and Talk Suicide is there to listen. You can check out uh, the resource at talksuicide.ca, and you can also call a toll-free number. It's it's open, obviously, 24-7, 365. Uh, the phone number is one 456 4566 again that's talksuicide.ca what are the names of your other two boys uh liam is my oldest and Jax is my middle jackson liam Jax. and Jax. yeah uh, how have your conversations or how has your relationship with them changed since you lost luke mm, that's a good question i i i, I don't I, I mean listen we, we've all changed after after losing Luke, but I don't know if our relationship has changed. I know that there's a, a new depth to all of our relationships. I'll say that, um, you know, we're, we, I talk to my boys about suicide a lot. Uh, we we do our best to we, we always did our best to be in their business, you know, to to know what's going on in, in all three of their lives, and and that hasn't changed. Maybe, actually, truthfully, it's probably intensified a bit. You know, I'm sure. You know, Liam will be 22 this year. Jax is turning 20, and I'm sure they're looking at us like, back off. But hmm. my message to anybody with kids is don't back off. And I don't care how old they are. I don't care if they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, don't back off. Um, I think it's our our job to to be relentless with our kids, and and we'll continue to do that with our older boys. You know, we will. Hmm. They're good boys. Do you have, have, have you become kind of a sounding board or have you become in a, in a way, you know, the, the, the type of individual, I guess, that, that some others are, are, are gravitating to or that some are coming to you for advice? I mean, do you have, mm. is it a common thing for other parents that are experiencing some of these same things or that are concerned, you know, out of yeah. love for their own kids that are I, looking to you for advice? I, I kind of was that before because of the yeah, work I do. Of course. Right. Um, I think people have been quite respectful after after Luke took his life to to give us room and space. But but two years in, and and now that we've put um, you know some stuff out there publicly, and and I, I don't know if if you know I can I, I like to kind of mostly speak for myself on my journey. I don't know if I'm going to become the suicide is complicated guy, mm. the hardcore advocate. I find it tough, obviously. Um, but you know when you put things out publicly then obviously you do get people reaching out to you and and uh, a lot of people you know and then some randoms as well and you do the best you can trying to say the right thing to them and and uh you know in the midst of our grief we've learned some things around grief literacy and grief illiteracy we call it and mm. we learned that term and and you know when you're grieving at this deep level um sometimes people just have grief illiteracy they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And and we get that because truthfully, we were like that on April 4th, 2021. Uh, Chris and I talk about it on the podcast where, uh, you know, I avoided them because I didn't know what to do and what to say. But people say weird. Uh, I was going to swear. People say weird things. You can to say whatever you, you oh, want. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a podcast. People say weird shit to you. And, 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 and because, again, they don't know what to do and what to say. So when when you're a parent dealing with, with a, a, a losing a child to suicide um there's been some people that have probably you know come at us and ask to support them in a way where it was a little too soon for us a little yeah. too raw yeah but that being said you know even yesterday after you know we put some stuff out uh, be a light for luke and it's all this stuff and you know i had some people reach out and i'm fine with that 
I'm okay with that. If we if we can help, there's no silver linings for me in Luke's suicide, um, and that's selfish to say, but um, grief is selfish. I just want my boy back. I just want him to run up the stairs again. I just want to hug him. I just want to just want to smell him and just all those things you do as a dad. I just want to just want to touch him. I just want everything, and it's unfixable. It's not going to happen again. And so for me, <clears throat> there are no silver linings. We've had many people say, like, we've talked to our kids now. We continue to talk to our kids. And honestly, that's amazing. And I'm really happy about that. I just wish it wasn't um, Luke's story that helped. Yeah. If that makes sense. Of course it does. You know. And again, that's selfish, but I think I'm, I'm okay to be selfish on wanting my boy back. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I find, you know, it's it's like, you know, I sit in this chair with, um, I guess, the, what is it, the, the luxury, and what's the word, the luxury, the luckiness of not having navigated the loss like you have, and we can sit here and say, oh, I understand, I understand what you're talking about, that is understandable, but at the same time, you can't understand, no, I can't understand. you can't, right? Nobody can understand. And my hope for you is right? that you never will. Of course. Right? And that's actually one thing that people say to us a lot in their grief illiteracy is, oh, I understand. Mm. I totally understand. And there's many times that I just want to, uh, you know, no, you don't. Like Remind them, no, you yeah, don't. But, but we'll be gentle with people too. But at the end of the day, you don't understand. And this is where Chris and I in the podcast, we understand that our, the, 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 the deaths of our sons are actually very different. But there's all these commonalities with our grief and, and all that, right? Um, but we don't want people to, to get it. We don't want people to understand and, and – uh, we never wanted to understand it either. And truthfully, Ryan, we don't fully understand it. <laughs> you know, like I said earlier, suicide is complicated. It doesn't add up. And so we don't understand any of that. We're going to live the rest of our lives with just a thousand questions, a thousand what ifs, and a thousand whys. Um, but as we navigate this and we just try to to survive and, and, and move forward, never move on, move forward, um, we're just going to continue to try to get up every day and try. Yeah. Our lives feel incomplete. And know, will forever, right? Will forever. They will forever. You talk to different people that have that have lost a loved one to suicide, and they'll talk about the different emotions that they navigate. And there's grief and loss and mm-hmm. shock. Um, a lot of people talk about anger yeah. as I've, well. I've, I've gone through it. Yeah. yeah. I in the, in the beginning, I was... Um, I say beginning, I'm talking first week or so, like very angry at Luke, very angry. Cause it, I called it carnage, you know, um, it's, it's, I, because of the lack of understanding. And I used to have the attitude that weak, that, uh, suicide was weakness. It was, it was a coward's way out. Um, it was selfish. I've changed. And unfortunately it took my son taking his life for me to change. <clears throat> Luke was not weak. The kid was strong, man. Physically, mentally. Like he was. He was. He was the he was as one of the most relentless people I'd ever met in my life. Mm. This kid, if he wanted something, annoyingly relentless. <laughs> in an awesome way, though. And determined. 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 Um and he wasn't. Well, you know, he was as selfish as any other sixteen year old kid is. But he thought of others. He loved others. And like I said earlier, this was a brain attack. 
Luke was overtaken by something. He wasn't selfish. He wasn't weak. And um, so I've changed. I've changed my outlook on that. I feel embarrassed that I thought that way before because, but I think it's a common way for people to think, you know, and my, my hope is that you can change that thought um, without having to go through what we've gone through. Means a lot that you're uh, joining us here and talking about this. Uh, we can't imagine what it would be like to walk a mile in your shoes or your wife's or your boys, mm. but uh, I admire your courage uh, your relentless nature and uh, and what you're doing uh, in talking about this and, and continuing to I don't know if you you wouldn't have seen the live chat on YouTube right now right when we started you started talking a bunch of comments people are going is that the UCAN guy is that the guy from UCAN you're obviously <laughs> making a big impact uh, in your professional career as well mm, and, uh, and and want to let people know that they can they can check out more about uh, what UCAN is doing online at UCAN.ca um, so reads the Headline, so to speak, our support, their success. You uh, can a nonprofit charitable organization helping young people out of harm's way onto a path of economic independence. Uh, we'll have to get you back to talk more about that sometime. But today we honor your boy, Luke, and uh, much love to you and your family and, and a whole lot of respect from, from us and this podcast family to yours as well. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you so much for, for giving me a platform to uh, talk about First and foremost, my sweet Lukey. Yeah. And um and just suicide and grief and, and uh I, I'll say it one more time, just be relentless people. And it's with your kids, it's with those relationships that are important to you in your life. Be relentless. Be relentless. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. Thanks. That's Kyle Dubay and uh, you can find him on Twitter as well at Kyle Dubay if you want to shoot him a note and let him know how much you appreciate uh, what he's brought to the table this morning. Uh, coming up in just a couple seconds, we're going to check in with Anna mailer Paperni. Uh, she's written an incredibly powerful book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, uh, the award-winning journalist. That's a personal story, and we're going to get into that in just a second. This conversation is presented by our friends at Park Power. Uh, if you're looking to save money on utilities, and who isn't these days with the way things are going, uh, check out our conversation yesterday with economist Blake Schaefer about the electricity that temporary rate cap being lifted and what it means for alberta's 200 million dollar liability there it's got everybody talking about power natural gas electricity of course internet as well you can compare rates today what you are paying versus what you could be paying with park power and uh, when you realize what savings lie in wait don't forget you can also save even more off your first bill by using the promo code realtalk23 that's the bundle code that'll knock 50 bucks off your first bill for every service you go with. So if you go with the full load, electricity, natural gas, and internet, that's $150 off your first bill from Park Power. Now, it makes perfect sense to also give a shout out to and check out Kubi Renewable Energy online at kubienergy.ca. Why do we mention these two companies back to back? Well, because Park Power's got a solar club and Kubi Energy plays a big role in that. Once you've got solar panels on your roof, take your business to Park Power to find out the savings that are there and why Kubi. There's a lot of options for solar installers. Nobody else has Tesla certified installers. You only have either journeyman or journeyman apprentices up on your roof doing the work and you can check out the professional installs their remarkable stuff across bc alberta and saskatchewan northwest territories as well residential commercial industrial kubi renewable energy does it all 
go ahead and grab a free quote from them. You can give them a shout at one 899 kuby They'll tell you about that Canada Greener Homes Grant. That's that $40,000 loan available from the federal government. You can pay it back over 10 years interest-free to get solar on your roof, maybe ahead of schedule, ahead of when you thought it might be. That's Kuby Renewable Energy. We're talking a lot about home improvement these days, aren't we? If you're looking to maybe create more space, bring some organization into your life, you're going to want to go ahead and request a free consultation with the team at California Closets. That's what we did, and it completely changed the game. We did it in the bedroom with the walk-in closets. They did an incredible entertainment console-type setup, bookshelves, and beautiful glass in our living room. It changed the game. Check this out. Real Talker Dustin, if you're watching on YouTube, sent us these images. That was their bare-walled guest room in their beautiful new home, but they needed to ramp it up. Didn't want to put a big queen mattress in there, so they went with the Murphy bed. And look at the magic. California closets bringing that space to a whole new level. A beautiful workspace when the Murphy bed's up against the wall. Dustin says the team of installers was incredibly professional in and out in just one day. It said the cost was well worth it. You can find them online at californiaclosets.ca. You know, we did our own renovation here in this studio in Edmonton's beautiful historic Mercer warehouse. And we tapped on the shoulder the team from Complete Care Restoration. Now, a lot of their work is helping people out that are, quite frankly in a whole load of trouble. They're dealing with fire damage, flood damage, mold and asbestos in the walls. I mean, this is the type of situation nobody wants to navigate, but if you do find yourself there, make your first call, Complete Care Restoration. Chances are your insurance policy lets you choose who's gonna do the work to restore your biggest investment. Check out completecarerestoration.ca to make sure the job is done right the first time and of course done to your satisfaction coming up in just a couple of seconds we're going to check in with anna mailer paperni this is a a different type of a episode for us you know we, we wanted to make sure that we dedicate real time that we actually make space for these conversations but we know that these are tough ones And we know that a lot of you are going to be feeling this in a way that the rest of us can't understand. We're seeing notes on our live chat from beloved members, regular members of this audience that are letting us know that you're maybe going to listen to this later, or maybe you're approaching this episode differently than you might because it's really hitting home. And we respect that. And we appreciate that you're showing up to have these conversations with us. I want to remind you again that resources are available when you're talking about suicide. You want to know, of course, that supports are always there. If you personally are thinking about suicide, we encourage you to check out TalkSuicide.ca or to call that resource 24 hours a day at 1-833-456-4566. If it is an emergency, please call 911. Our next guest is an award-winning journalist who has commanded the respect of her peers and her readers for many years. She's currently working for Reuters. You've read her work in the Globe and Mail, and you've likely heard about her book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. Anna Mailer Paperni joining us live, making her Real Talk debut this morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to see you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we've had it. You know, it's it, it feels like kind of one of these heavy lifting type shows, and we understand the importance of talking about suicide and trying to understand more about it. You've taken it to a whole new level. I mean, you've just opened up your life. You've put it in the pages of a book for thousands, if not millions of people to read. How did you get to that point? It was a weird journey because this is not something that I come to naturally. I'm not naturally an oversharing, you know, like spilling my guts for the world type of person. But I realized when I was wrestling with my own desire to die, with my own suicidality, with my own depression, that there were things I needed to get on the page and there were questions that I needed to try to answer. And as I wrote the sort of little bits and snatches of what I was going through, and as I tried to dig up answers, this felt like something that other people might benefit from reading as well. But it took a while to get comfortable with sharing these really personal aspects of myself. There are things that still feel weird, mm. to be honest. Um, but I do think it's important to to open up about this kind of thing. Mm. Did you, when, when you write about, you talk about you, your own journey, your, your mental health or, or, your, or your journey with mental illness. Is there, by the way, is there, is there one phrase that you prefer over the other? Some people talk about mental health, mental illness. I usually use the term mental illness to describe like the, the pathology and then mental health is like cardiac health. It's like, right. you know, bone health. It's a much more general sort of term, like for the spectrum right. of anything that fits in that basket. Yeah. Did you, were you, were you navigating uh, mental illness or did you recognize signs of mental illness as a, as a young girl, like as, as a so-called tween or a teen? Not really, honestly. I and mean, I think this is a part of the, the illness. It sort of tricks you into thinking that the problem is you and not some other part, like out some you know external force attacking you. So I didn't think that I had a mental illness until I was in the psych ward, until I was like, I had tried to kill myself and I wound up in hospital and you know, the psychiatrist was like, yeah, you have depression. And I was like, no, I don't. I just want to die because I'm, I'm a bad person. Um, so it took me a while to sort of reconcile that for myself and to admit to myself that like, maybe this is an illness. Maybe this is an external illness that's sort of affecting me. And, um, you know, maybe there are ways to address it um, from a medical perspective. But it was hard to realize. It's, it's hard to sort of acknowledge that your brain is being influenced by, you know, these pathological external factors. When you had that moment of, of realization or, may, or maybe it was maybe, maybe it slowly washed over you, maybe there wasn't this moment, but did it actually serve in a way uh, at a very obviously difficult time in your life? Did it serve to kind of shift you over and put you uh, facing a direction where you could start to better understand it? and start to, you know, start that healing journey or, or start your mental health journey, so to speak? I think so. I mean, it, it's funny, like, um, when I first, sorry about that. Um, when it first started, it, it like, the stigma, and I hate the word stigma because it's so overused, but that's really what it is. Um, it is so powerful that when I first heard depression, I was like, well, depression sounds like a really unserious thing. It sounds like everyone talks about being depressed. Could that really be what's going on for me? But when I admitted to myself that this was depression, that this was an illness, that's what allowed me to address it from a medical perspective. That's what allowed me to say, you know what, maybe there are 
pharmacotherapies or psychotherapies that I can try to treat this. Whereas before I, I felt like this was something that was wrong with me. This was a default, a defect um, within me. And so being able to admit myself or, or tell myself that this was something external um, was a powerful force in terms of addressing it for me. Uh, let me read. Uh, it's always weird for me to read uh, two people from their own books, but, but I want to, for, for the benefit of our audience, uh, you write being loved is a necessary prerequisite for wanting to live, uh, but it is not sufficient on its own. And someone's guilt at what I do to my family forments my desire to die. I feel like a septic limb that must be cut off lest it kill the whole organism. A painful excision, but a necessary one. What propels the desire to want to die? There's a lot going on, but I think what I was getting at there is just that, I mean, a lot of people who love people who try to kill themselves or who do kill themselves, there's an enormous amount of anguish there, which obviously makes sense. It's a horrifying thing to go through. But I think there's a question of like, did this person feel loved? Did this person love the people who were close to them? And how could you do that? How could you kill yourself or try to kill yourself? while you're experiencing love, when you know that people love you. Um, there's a fear that, and I, I, th I think a fear among people who are suicidal, that they're hurting the ones that they love the most. But what I was going through, and what I still sometimes go through, is a sense that I'm bad for the people I love the most, that I'm hurting them by being alive. And when you feel that way, death becomes a much more beguiling prospect. Mm. Um, because you feel like you'd almost be doing people a favor by ending your life. It's a, it's toxic. It's a horrifying and toxic thing to go through. I, I, I'm not sure if I feel like I should ask you this question because I think that this is, <laughs> but I will, um, you know, I feel, I feel like, um, uh, and if you're just joining us, we're talking to Anna Mailer Paperni, um, author of hello, I want to die. Please fix me. Um, would you, you know, have you ever been asked by anyone to speak to people who may be, considering suicide like it's it's not lost on me that some people are going to discover this episode that have maybe never heard of this show before they've never heard of me before they might have heard of you before but they might be in that boat um and you know we're we're we're, we're careful to remind people and and we believe understand the importance of put, uh, reminding people that there are resources out there but do you believe that you have a perspective that you can share with someone in that situation that would be very unique and and if so what would you say to that person? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I have spoken with a lot of people who have been considering suicide, some of whom have attempted suicide. Mm. And it's hard. It, it comes with when you write a book like this, you're going to encounter people who are going through this. Yeah. And it's painful because you, you know, I think the, the instinct for a lot of people is to say, don't feel that way. You're loved and you deserve to be alive and you have worth as a human. And that's all of that is important. But one thing that I think, you know, this book has spelled out for some people who are going through this is just that what they're experiencing is valid. So even if it's not justified, even if their desire to die um, isn't justified and there are reasons for them to live and, and there are ways to combat the suicidal ideation that they're going through, I think it's important to say, this genuinely sucks. And I'm sorry you're going through this. 
And I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to wish it away. I think there's often, because it's such an uncomfortable topic, people often just want to elide it altogether. They want to avoid it. And I don't think that's ultimately helpful for the people going through this because they want to feel, um, if not understood, at least they want their pain to be appreciated. Mm. And I think that's an important starting point for then saying, you know, you say, yes, what you're going through is genuinely awful and I'm sorry and I don't want to minimize it. Let's talk about what we, how to find a way to make life worth living for you. Some people, and, and there's no right answer here to be sure, uh, but some people in talking about suicide, whether it's their own attempts uh, or whether it's perhaps a loss they've experienced, someone that they love, um, will be willing to talk to a certain degree but do not want to talk about the details. Um, the details that you share in your book are very real and, and visceral um, and deep. Um, what prompted you to share your story on the attempts on your life to those depths? I think it was the fact that we see that so rarely. Um, increasingly, people are talking about mental illness and they're talking about suicide, but so often we gloss over the messy details, which I think is understandable because they're uncomfortable. But I think because that awfulness is so real for so many, I think it, it's incumbent on me and I'm in a privileged position. I'm able to um, divulge my personal struggle in a way that I think a lot of people aren't in a position to do. Um, I, I have a job, I have a loving family, I have healthcare, which is so miraculous and for mental illnesses is so rare, reprehensibly so. Um, so I have felt like I'm in a position to make these disclosures with relatively few repercussions for me. But I think they force us to really grapple with the reality of suicide which is necessary because otherwise you're sort of talking around the edges. You're not really wrestling with it in a, in a direct way. And I think in order to um, address pe like people's serious suicidality, I think that's necessary. Um, you write in your book, I swear depression doesn't make me fuck up assignments. Um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I, I like, what, what was it like for you? You know, how did you, did you have to work to convince like, like, you know, employers, colleagues, family members, friends that, you know, you could be trusted to take care of yourself? Like, well, what was that like after, you know, what, what you went through you were 24, right at the time? The first time I was 24. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. And I mean, it's hard for friends. Like, I think there's a, there's a temptation to treat someone in this position with sort of kid gloves mm. and just sort of to be gentle with them. And I had to be like, you know what? I mean, when I'm, when I'm off work, I'm off work and I'm lucky to be able to take sick days when I, when I need to. And I have been at, when I've had to, um, you know, to my chagrin take, you know, short-term or long-term disability, I've been able to do that. But, um, I've been also lucky to have, you know, colleagues and managers who say, you know what, if you're well enough to work, get to work. Um, and that feels really good because work for me is fueling and it keeps me going. And, um, but it, it is, it is difficult. I think there are people, there were people after that first attempt, there were people after subsequent attempts who just didn't know how to respond um, and 
that's hard because it, you can't sort of tell people how to react, but you also just at, some, at times want to say, look, please just treat me like a normal person. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still a human being here. Yeah. Kathy's watching us live right now on, on YouTube. And uh, she says, she talks about her sister-in-law and she says she went through very severe postpartum depression after her first baby uh, to the point where she was telling people that her family would be better off without her. Um, Kathy says, thankfully, we convinced her to get help and to talk to her doctor and uh, says we were better prepared to watch for it with her second baby. uh, But it was so hard to be so far away and still try to support her. Uh, You talk about how you wanted to or want uh, to be treated by your friends and your colleagues and your family. Is is do you think there's one right way to do it or is it subjective based on each person? Well, what would you tell the audience? I think it definitely varies by person, but I think the first element is just being willing to listen, to listen actively and to listen empathically and non-judgmentally. Um, I, again, I, I don't want to I don't want to be prescriptive, but I do think that being able to sort of just provide that empathic ear and to tell someone how much you love them and tell them that you're glad that they're alive, that you want them to keep on living and that you're there to help them keep on living but also not to sort of invalidate what they're going through. I think that's really important. So being able to say, you know, this sucks and I'm sorry. And I'm glad that you told me, don't ever be afraid to tell me this. I want to know, I want to know what's going on. I want you to feel comfortable talking to me at any time. Um, Let's talk about how we can make your life worth living because there are things that are doable. One challenge is that mental health care is so out of reach for so many. Yeah. And that makes that enraging because it shouldn't be that way. And you want someone to, once you're able to convince them to get help, you want the help to be there. So I think part of this, and this is what can be exhausting for loved ones, is like, on the one hand, convince someone that it's worth getting help, it's worth seeking out care, and then fighting to get that care, which shouldn't be a fight, but so often is. Um, it puts a great burden on loved ones. And I think that's really, it's awful. But I I would encourage people not to give up on the people that they love. Well, you have, I mean, you have this this really, I mean, this rich perspective. I mean, I, I don't mean to sort of make light of or, or, or be glib about your personal experience. And, uh, but, but you're, you're, you know, you have these sort of parallel journeys as someone that has lived with mental illness and, and then also as a journalist, right? And, and so you're, if, if you're like other journalists that I know, if, if, if you're like me, you're always paying attention to things and you're always analyzing things and you're, and in some circumstances, applying your personal learnings to the bigger picture. And you're just talking about it there, you know, regarding mental health supports. And you're coming to us from Ontario. We're here in Alberta. I think across the country, uh, systems are strained. People are waiting. In some circumstances, I heard about somebody the other day. They wrote into the show to tell us that they were waiting for a psych referral. And they were told that on the long end, it might be 18 months. I mean, that's preposterous. Can you imagine? But what if it was only six? Why would it even be one month? I mean, how how has this informed or impacted uh, or enriched your perspective as a journalist. It's enraging, honestly, because you know I see I see many sides of it. I see the I see my own side. I see my personal side. I talk to people who've been waiting for months and who deteriorate and who get to the point where they need you know hospitalization. 
so like they, I mean, just from a health systems perspective, it is, as you say, it's preposterous and it should be unacceptable. And, you know, we put, we sort of shunt people to the most expensive and the most acute end of the care system. And then we're like, why are people getting worse? Why aren't people getting care? Why do people have such a negative view of mental health care? Well, it's because when they need it, it's not there. And when they get to be so, so bad that they need emergency care, it's often really unpleasant. And that's when it tends to be involuntary or it is more frequently becoming involuntary. Um, you know, we see this sort of acute care often fails to connect people to ongoing care. These are chronic conditions. So a hospitalization, if it's, if it's necessary, may be helpful in the immediate term, but if it's not connecting you to ongoing care on your way out the door, if it's just sort of sending you on your way, that's not gonna help you in the long run. So we have a system that is not working and it's not working especially for the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. And as a result, we see them get worse when they didn't under otherwise have to. Um, so it's it's really infuriating. It can be. Can we, can we talk about you, you? You referenced your time in, in the, the psych ward and uh, you write about your voluntary admission uh, to the psych ward. How, how important was long term care for you? And, and can you talk about the, the impact that that had on you and maybe some of the things that you noticed, maybe some of the connections that you made when you were there and, you know, the, the value that others were seeing in that as well? Long term care has saved my, like ongoing care has saved my life. No question. Um, my first time in hospital, I was there involuntarily. I was there against my will and they were actually going to discharge me with no follow-up plan because they just, it wasn't standard of care. <clears throat> it wasn't standard of care at the time. And my parents who were like at their wits end, they were like, you know, enormously distressed. They pushed for a second opinion. They got a second opinion and that psychiatrist said, yeah, I, I don't think we can let you go. You're, you're too sick which enraged me at the time. But what was magical about it was that he also said, and I'm gonna be your psychiatrist going forward. So when, you, when you're an outpatient, when we discharge you, you're going to have ongoing care. And that has, I cannot emphasize enough, the degree to which having a care practitioner who is empathic and knows his stuff and is willing to follow me on an ongoing long-term basis, that's made a world of difference for me. And it shouldn't be rare, it shouldn't be the exception. And yet for so many people, it is. That's that's an example of something that you would say the you know the healthcare system or the medical system is doing right, um, or at least in that instance is doing right in terms of addressing suicidality. Uh, was there something else is, as you look around? And and again through your journalist lens, uh, do you see anything across the country? Do you see anything in Ontario or, or or in other jurisdictions where you say that's a move in the right direction? I definitely think any sort of improving access to ongoing care is definitely a move in the right direction. And, and in some hospitals, it's become standard of practice. I think it should be standard of practice everywhere. I think it's crucial. And it's it's again, it's going to save the system money because you're less likely to deteriorate to the point of needing a hospitalization, which is expensive. Um, so that's hugely important. I also think that there's some exciting research going on into new treatment modalities, um, which is important. 
there are sort of two, I think, prongs of mental health care that we need to address. One is our ignorance. We don't know enough about these illnesses. We don't know how they work. We don't know where they come from or how to treat them. Our treatments are inadequate. Too often they don't work. But the other one is inadequacies in acting on what we do know. And so that's where things like you know ongoing care, that's where things like civilian crisis response as opposed to police responding to mental health crises, that's where those come in. In, in instances where we know that what we've been doing doesn't work and there are better ways to address this, we need to act on that. There is such a, a supercharged. I, some people might see this as as me taking this conversation off track, but but I know you can ride with me on this. There's a there's a, a, a supercharged situation in Alberta right now, in particular. Alberta Premier uh, Daniel Smith just yesterday uh, announced a hundred additional police officers to be split between Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, I don't need to tell you that two police officers were gunned down and killed uh, on March 16th uh, by a 16 year old boy who had also shot his mother, who had also shot an employee at a, at, a, at a pizza hut restaurant there's obviously a lot to that story and some breakdowns that happened there and and i'm not here to comment on that but calgary's mayor jody gondek was was hit square between the eyes yesterday with a question uh about her su- support perceived or otherwise for the so-called defund the police movement and 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 it's becoming very politicized. And if you talk to some people, I mean, you know, there are different and varying degrees on what people mean by defund the police. And some of it is based on political ideology. And but some of it is based on just real observations where mental health advocates or first responders will say, like you just did, we need to have more mental health workers responding to these types of calls as opposed to just police officers we also see circumstances like that tragedy in Edmonton, where obviously uh, whoever showed up there was was probably going to encounter a very difficult situation. And, and, and who knows what may have happened had the dynamic been different of who did show up. It, it, it's a very polarizing topic, uh, this whole idea of defund the police. And like I said, it means different things to different people. But do you think that the conversation or, or even you know better the policy Uh, in Canada or elsewhere is moving in a direction where we are as a society responding uh, to mental health calls in a way that looks toward the evidence and responds to that? I don't think we're there yet. I mean, first of all, I want to say these incidents are sorrowful. They're just horrifying. And I, you know, I can't comment on, on the circumstances directly. But I think one question that we do need to ask ourselves is, are we responding to these situations in the most evidence-based way possible? Are we responding in a way that's least likely to cause harm to anyone involved? Is it is it most likely to result in, you know, in everyone's safety, in, ev- in people getting the help that they need? I think those are important questions for us to ask. And I think if you talk to police officers, most like the ones I've spoken to don't want to be responding to mental illness calls. They're like messy and time consuming and really challenging. And police are trained, you know, to move fast. That's the nature of their job. These are situations that require you to slow everything down. Mm-hmm. And in many instances, what is required to keep people safe in these in, in, you know, situations is counter to the way police are trained to do their jobs. Mm. So 
obviously I can't weigh in on the defund on the defund debate, but I think that we need to ask ourselves in these situations, are we dispatching the people best equipped to deal with this in a safe and productive and help seeking manner? I want to shine a light on some of the comments, the you know, the, the people that are here with us uh, watching the live stream on YouTube. Tony says our workplace has been really good about providing resources for staff to reach out. They've set up a peer support group where you can talk to somebody confidentially. They say, I wish we would have done this years ago. There are people talking about psilocybins and so-called mushroom therapy and different approaches. I don't know. If, Anna, did you know that Alberta, this has kind of flown under the radar, um, but Alberta just a couple of months ago became the first jurisdiction in Canada. Uh, to, to, to make available uh, different therapies by prescription, including uh, psilocybin, ketamine, uh, things like that. And, and, and a lot of mental health professionals that I've talked to, we have yet to do a, an on-air, you know, on-the-record show on it, but they're saying that this is a mark of great progress. Um, and to be snide for a second, Alberta doesn't always get celebrated for the progress moves. A lot of times it's the regress moves, and so that was a move in the right direction. Um, Artie Miss says, I've heard some people say sorry to counselors for so-called burdening them with their stories. You know, people need to be validated for feeling the way they feel, to be reminded that they're not weak and this is not a burden. Uh, was, was there a way or a manner or was there an instance of, of how your loved ones uh, approached you or treated you, talked to you um, through the times of your struggle, through those, those low moments, so to speak, um, that you would wish upon others? Like we always sort of try to find a, a takeaway from these episodes, something that people can can walk with and remember and learn from and grow from. What would that be from your perspective? This is going to sound horrible, but one thing my family excels at is inappropriate humor. Yeah. Uh, so just like cracking jokes in the hospital, um, which I know is not everybody's thing. But in my case, I found that really helpful because it allows you to sort of assert control over this thing that's taking over your life because you're saying, I can laugh at this. I have a degree of agency here. So that was like hugely important for me. But I think also just talking frankly and openly, you know, saying like, you don't have to be afraid to raise this with me. I can handle it. Don't, don't try to shield me from what you're going through. Lay it on me and let's work on this together because these illnesses are so isolating. You think you're the only person, you think you're all alone. And that obviously fuels really dark thoughts and places to go. Mm. Anna Mailer Paperni is the author of Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. You can find it anywhere you buy good books. And of course, you can check out more about what Anna does by checking out annamailerpaperni.com. Or following her on Twitter at AMP6. We'll have all of those links in the show notes on both YouTube and on our podcast. I feel like I made a friend today. I've always been a fan of your work, but I really, really appreciate you showing up to talk about this. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You got it. Anna Mailer Paperni, a journalist with Reuters. Again, you can find resources 24 hours a day at TalkSuicide.ca, that toll-free number, available 24-7, 365. That number is 1-833-456-4566. Appreciate the comments that have been coming in on our live chat here. Look at this. You know, I mean, this is really amazing. Shalane saying, you know, waiting for assessments for kids in schools is averaging 18 months waiting for an assessment. She says it's horrible. 
What about Luke's story? We've understood today from Kyle Dubay, who joined us in studio, the importance of providing mental health resources for young people. Brad says, Anne is so right about the burden this can put on loved ones or how it is perceived. Brad says, dealing with my head injury, it can be so hard to navigate, find resources that can help. Everybody's different on how they're affected. Tracy says, there are so many skilled professionals, great, caring professionals. We simply need to fund more. Tracy says, I have to believe that the growing awareness of mental health is making a difference. Can I get political for a quick second, nonpartisan, and and remind you all? I mean, if you're in our home province of Alberta, you're going to have political candidates knocking on your door. You're going to have parties campaigning for your vote. If this has lit a fire under you, if this has strengthened your resolve, make that your first question at the door. What is your party going to do? If you form government, what will you do to provide more resources for mental health and mental health care in the province? AM says insurance companies need to start covering master's level, graduate level counselors, you know, says funding for inexpensive or free mental health care for all ages. Absolutely. Deborah says my sister is chronically suicidal and I have no idea what to do about it. So I just listen and I hope to be able to intervene if it gets too close. Deborah, I can't imagine. I hope that today's episode provided some value or some insight to you. We think of you today. A lot of you are commenting on the tragic circumstance in Edmonton earlier this month. We won't get into that, but I wanted to invoke that just in the context of that defund the police movement. It's such a supercharged conversation. And while I think a lot of talk shows can contribute to that sort of hyper-partisan or, or, or fiery debates over things, and there is a role for that, and there is a need for that, sometimes the role of a talk show is to lower the temperature and to bring people together to have conversations and healthy debates about the best places or ways to allocate resources. And I think that this is an example of that. Tony simply says, well, there's another book to add to my collection. That book was recommended to us. I followed Anna for a long time, but the book was specifically recommended to us by a real talker by the name of Jennifer, who sent us her own thoughts on the book and the impact it had, the profound impact that it had on her life. And I'm so grateful for that. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com if you'd prefer to reach out on social media and let us know how this episode has landed with you, how it's impacted your perspective. Maybe there's something we missed that you'd like to see us talk about in a future episode. You can also use our hashtag RealTalkRJ. I know that many of you uh, will be celebrating uh, Passover. Many of you will be celebrating Easter uh, this coming weekend. Many of you will be gathering together with friends or family. Our friends at Friesen Brothers have been putting great food on family dinner tables since 1955. And today I want to remind you about the Friesen Brothers Easter dinner box. This is one that you can order through Catering by Friesen Brothers online. That's cateringbyfriesen.com, F-R-E-S-O-N. They've got prepared options so you can customize your Easter dinner. The main course, traditional mountain park ham with that beautiful glaze, roasted garlic, parmesan, baby potatoes, and honey dill carrots that will blow your mind. There's add-ons like the famous granny's stuffing, their iconic sourdough hot cross buns, and beautiful desserts like their sourdough cinnamon buns, which I personally recommend, and the coconut macaroon cookies. Uh, each 
Friesen Brothers Easter dinner box feeds up to four people. If you've got 40 of them coming over, just order 10 of them. It's easy to heat up in the oven, and it saves you from doing the work. You can spend more time with your loved ones. That's cateringbyfriesen.com. Hey, this weekend, maybe you're going to be doing some thinking about the future of your career. Uh, Maybe you've just had enough of, of where you're working right now. If you're a professional engineer or an automation technologist in Canada, I want to tell you about Apex Automation. Check them out online right now at apexautomation.ca. They are literally always hiring. Yeah, they're always hiring at apexautomation.ca. You can learn more by following the link on their website. You can check it out under the Sponsors tab on ours as well. They're doing a ton of projects across North America in engineering, fabrication, and automation And they're putting people ahead of profits. It's probably why they've tripled the size of their team over the last three years. We're proud to partner with the team at Apex Automation. If you're outdoors, and I'm talking about your biggest investment, your home needs an overhaul. If you're looking to infuse maybe a little life into that space, the uninspired design right now is driving you nuts. And you know this summer, you're going to be looking out at that lone tree or that spotty sod and wishing it could look a whole lot different, the entire transformation can start with a consultation with Eden Landscaping. Mike and his team have been building custom landscapes, executing visions, taking Pinterest boards and turning them into reality for more than 20 years, earning the return business and the referrals of their happy customers. You can check out their portfolio online at landscapeedmonton.ca. You're going to see diverse designs there, ultra-modern designs, natural beauty, stunning stonework. Nobody does it better than Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. This weekend, if you're feeling like maybe leaving the cook into someone else and you need to grab something in a hurry, stop in at one of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Now, these are the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And if you really want to make an impression, maybe showing up to someone else's place for Easter dinner, why not enjoy layers of celebration with a DQ cake? Any occasion is a happy occasion with a DQ cake. You can order them online. You can order them in person. You can grab and go, or you can fully customize at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And we also wanted to remind you about the amazing work that's being done right now by our friends at Local Environmental Services. You say, what, garbage and recycling? Yeah, some people may say it's only garbage, but not to them. They believe that communities deserve better. Better service, better prices, and more support for local causes. You can learn more about the big deal that is Local Environmental Services by checking out their website, localenvironmental.ca. The quotes for Alberta and Saskatchewan service are always free, and we can virtually guarantee you'll pay less with Local Environmental Services. Friends, Real Talk will be observing the stat holidays here in our home province of Alberta. Uh, that's tomorrow and coming up on Monday as well. We're going to spend some time with our loved ones and recharge our batteries, and that means that we'll be back live at it on Tuesday morning at 8.30 Mountain Time or, of course, later 
on demand. We've got some great interviews lined up. If you'd like the insights ahead of time, before we announce them on our social media, you can always subscribe to our Real Talk email newsletter. It's free, of course, and it's your way to get the inside track on what's coming up on the show. Again, thank you for showing up to have a difficult conversation, but incredibly important one. We know that we can make a difference when it comes to mental health care supports and services in Canada if we continue to drive real talk around it. And that doesn't happen without you being here. Much love, Real Talkers. We'll see you on Tuesday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive Producer, Josh Dunford. Technical Producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.